Man, oh man, it is great to be back. Um, I love you guys. Rhonda and I love you. Uh, you are so wonderful. It's just wonderful, I should say, to be back on this platform, to be back behind this pulpit. By, by the way, I don't know what this little thing Hannibal uses is, uh, but it's wrong. And it is great to be here with you. As Hannibal mentioned, Rhonda and I attend here, but between our large family that are located in all four time zones and my travel with Greater Europe Mission, uh, we're on the road a lot. Uh, as a matter of fact, last weekend I was in Athens, Greece. Um, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Greek Bible Institute, which was founded by Greater Europe Mission. And year after year, decade after decade, into the present, is uh, staffed, and we have GEM missionaries serving as faculty as well. GEM missionaries that are located in Athens, of course. Now, illustrating both the need and the opportunity in the continent of Europe, this is the only accredited evangelical institution in the entire country of Greece. Every single current Greek pastor has attended this institute, the Greek Bible Institute. And last Saturday night, as we were celebrating 50 years, it was just amazing. The stories. And now to shift and talk about something equally amazing, at least to Rhonda and myself, in March, we will be welcoming grandchild number 15. Rhonda's convinced we're going to 20. <laughs> Which, by the way, is part of the reason why a couple months ago I went out and bought noise-canceling AirPods. <laughs> now this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about my precious Savior, Jesus. That you might persevere in the chaos of this cultural moment. Because you see him who is invisible. That regardless of your circumstances, you might thrive and not merely survive. Because your heart overflows with the wonder of your bleeding and dying Savior who will never ever let you go. I'm not here to tell you to be better, but that Jesus is better. Because I've been at this long enough to know that our failure to thrive isn't so much a function, it isn't a function of our failure to do, it's a function of our failure to believe in our heart of hearts that my Jesus really is better. I want you to be able to say with David, Psalm 63, your love, O Lord, is better, better than life. And better, like the term beauty, 
is a spiritual, it's a theological term, and therefore it's a relational term because all of life is one Christological piece, right? One piece. Earlier this summer, my nephew's wife was riding her bike. Actually, not too far from here. Got hit by a car. Never regained consciousness and died three days later. Emily was 42, leaving behind five children, 18 and under. And at the funeral, her husband, my nephew David, spoke. And as I listened to David, I, I marveled at his calmness, his, his deep faith. In, in the midst of unimaginable grief, sudden grief, over and over as he spoke in a variety of different ways, I kept hearing that Jesus is better than marriage, than life. I was watching a man persevere because he sees him as invisible. Do you? Now that brings us to our passage, our text. So would you turn with me in your Bibles, or turn them on, to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 24, and I want you to stand with me as I read God's precious word. It's precious, right? Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, uh, just a remarkable section of this great chapter. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. And here's a section we're going to focus on. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Amen? You may be seated. Now, Moses saw God as better, right? As the good life, as the ultimate life. And this side of the cross, and for our purposes this morning, I want to talk about you seeing Jesus as better. Now, yes, the text tells us Moses persevered because he was looking ahead to his reward, but I want to focus on these last nine words in verse 27. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now think about that. Moses was the adopted son of the wealthiest family in maybe the wealthiest country in the world. We're talking about multiple diesel yachts on the Nile. 
downtown penthouses, unrivaled political power, unmatched parties. Yet by faith, Moses chose to walk away, to endure ill treatment with the people of God, and far more painfully, over the years, ill treatment from the people of God. Having one of the hardest jobs, one of the hardest assignments in human history. Uh, uh, Leading a notoriously uh, rebellious, stubborn, unfaithful, unbelieving people. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands through the backside of a desert, a blinding desert. And did I mention, and that for 40 long years. Wow. It's what you do when you see Jesus is better. And I want this for you. So let's look a little more closely at verse uh, 27. I said there's nine words. I want to focus on three. Him who is invisible, saw, and persevered. Two verbs and a noun. But let me say something about that. Life always begins in the kingdom of God and is always sustained by the noun. By God, who is invisible. So who is this one that Moses saw, this one that is invisible? Um, How is he better than the things that are the things that are invisible? I mean, we're talking all, all the treasures in Egypt. What did Moses know that you and I need to know? Well, for starters, uh, God was in the process of teaching Moses, will continue to teach Moses, that there are an infinite number of ways that God is better. God would teach him that there is an infinite fullness of every possible good in God. Do you know that in your heart? An infinite fullness of all beauty, all excellency, happiness, holiness, uh, perfection, sovereignty, uh, wisdom, and, and more. God would continue to pour that into Moses' soul. But apparently there was something, and I would say perhaps more fundamental, That God wanted Moses to know. Something that Moses needed to persevere. Something that would prove to be central to his ability to thrive and not merely survive. uh, To be content and to have confidence in, in the midst of unimaginable, ongoing rejection, pain, and difficulty. 
something that would hear me free Moses to love and serve an impossible people. And we don't see it coming, especially in the Old Testament. So let's go look at a story, an amazing story from this amazing man's life. Turn with me back in your Bibles to Exodus 33. We're going to come back to Hebrews. When we come to chapter 33, in the preceding chapter, we learn that in Moses' absence, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments with God, in Moses' absence, what does Israel do? Israel erects a golden calf. That's chapter 32. Demonstrating parenthetically that the human heart is more given to idolatry than the worship of God. So John Calvin says the human heart is an idol factory. I know uh, mine is. And all this to say, when we come to chapter 33, Moses, the leader of this nation, having experienced this uh, uh, cataclysmic event, is now, what, 100 miles past discouragement and pulling into a town called despair. And he prays. Fascinatingly, not for relief or relaxation, but look at what he prays in verse 18. Now, God, oh God, would you show me your glory? Spurgeon says this is the most important prayer you can pray. God, show me your glory. I pray it regularly. And let's go to the next verse. Look at how God responds. The beginning of verse 19, God says to Moses, okay, deal. I will cause, now notice the wording, all my goodness to pass in front of you. And you got to stop and press pause and say, what? Moses is talking about, show me your glory. And God responds, okay, I'm going to show you my goodness. Do you see what is happening? God's glory isn't merely the thunder and lightning of his holiness. It's the gentle rain of his goodness. And he wants Moses to experience it. And you as well. Okay, Moses, I'm going to cause. Okay, Moses, I'm going to show you. So you know the story. God places Moses between some massive rocks and passes by him. And he reveals himself not primarily in actions, but in words. We're going to look at him. Illustrating because God is revealing himself to Moses primarily in words, even though Moses has seen a bunch of miracles, right? When God reveals himself in in words to Moses, it just strikes me that this illustrates 
why the Bible is so important. Because God has revealed himself to you in words. Just as he revealed himself to Moses. And so uh, let's pick it up. And let's see what God says in this amazing passage. Chapter 34 now and verses 6 and 7. And he, that is God, passed in front of Moses uh, proclaiming. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, that's also translated merciful, the compassionate and, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, which is a, 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 a metaphor, a figure of speech for generation after generation, and then knows what he says next, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Not just one term, three, describing the forgiveness of God, and this is the Old Testament, illustrating how pervasive God's forgiveness is. How complete, how thorough, how final, ultimately. We're going to stop there. And again, i got to ask this question. What? I mean, what in the world? This is the Old Testament, right? You know that testament that describes God as a God of distance and judgment and wrath? No. What God says about himself oozes. Tenderness, softness, gentleness. What it oozes affection, unbridled affection for us. Love and mercy. God is telling us, as others have pointed out, that his glory equals his goodness equals his grace, mercy. Now think about this. God's infinite glory, his infinite goodness, is primarily revealed in his infinite mercy. And by the way, this passage, others tell us, is the foremost passage on revealing the heart of God. It's why this passage will be, it's so central to the Old Testament, it's why it'll be repeated over and over in the Old Testament in some of our favorite passages, like Psalm 103. It's why others tell us, now, uh, this is almost counterintuitive. It's why others tell us that the primary manifestation of God's glory, God's holiness, is his mercy. Well, of course, think Jesus. And my point is 
that the key to you thriving in life is not a function of your circumstances. It is not a function of your tenacity. It is not a function of what you do. It's a function of you taking your eyes off yourself and reaching outside of yourself and delighting yourself in the unfailing love of God and Jesus Christ. Amen? See. Behold. Contemplate. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It's Exodus 34. So when Hebrews 11 and 27 tells us Moses saw him who is invisible, yes, Moses saw a miracle after a miracle. I would have loved to have been Moses and see that. He, he saw God's redemption over and over. He saw God's sovereignty in the circumstances, every circumstances, uh, circumstance of his life. But the revelation of God to Moses indicates that God wants Moses also to understand and to drink from the infinite fountain of his mercy. And I want to suggest to you, this is why Moses was able to walk away from all the treasures in Egypt and persevere decade after decade, with an impossible people. Moses was alive in the presence of the living God. A couple months ago, Rhonda and I were in Atlanta, Georgia. We were visiting a son and a daughter, and we went out for lunch one day, and we went about an hour south of Atlanta. We were really kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Ended up this really nice uh, restaurant, and we were seated by a a window, and it was a, a beautiful Georgia day, and um, we sat down, and about 90 seconds into our being seated, the ladies started whispering, I mean our ladies, because they realized we were seated in the table right next to the famous actress Rachel McAdams. And her two little kids. And now we're best friends, by the way. <laughs> and it became an absolutely hilarious moment. You know, you're, uh, you're trying not to look, but... And you're trying to be normal, but you're, you know, whispering, do, do we say something to her? You know, you know, what do we do? And honestly, we were consumed by the presence of this well-known actress. It changed everything about our meal. Oh, yeah. And as I was preparing for this message over the last couple of weeks, suddenly it hit me, what is the matter with us? Isn't our God infinitely more famous? Isn't our God always present in our lives? I mean, now and forever? 
Isn't the point of Exodus 34 and what God says about himself that no one accepts us, no one cares for us, no one longs to be, hear me, intimate with us like God? These are words of intimacy. Does that make you giddy? Does that fill your day with delight to change everything uh, about your life? Now, speaking personally, too often this is not where I am. But it's always, always where I want to be. I mean, we are the bride of Christ. Isn't it insanity to ignore our husband? And his love? Yes, Jesus is invisible. But he is just on the other side of sight. And so my point is that we ultimately don't grow so much by the love we exercise, but by the love we trust. Uh, 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 not by the sacrifices we make, but the sacrifice we marvel in. And do you know what discipleship is? It's learning to sing a new song. The song of our Savior's love. Do you understand what ministry is? It's teaching others that song. Whether they're three or 93. And so when you put Hebrews eleven twenty seven 27 together, he saw him who is invisible, put it together with Exodus 34, the gracious and compassionate God, abounding in love. You are holding the keys to the kingdom. And I want this for you. Now let's go on to the second word. Let's back up this verb saw, as in he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now notice, the life of faith is not void of sight. It's void of physical sight. Ever since the creation of the world, Paul tells us, Romans chapter 1. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Invisible yet seen. Uh, The spiritual life is not void of sight, it's void of physical sight. So what does it mean to see? It means two things because there's two types of knowledge. Head knowledge, heart knowledge, conceptual, experiential, seeing and savoring. The one is light, the other is heat. The Puritans used to say it's the difference between reading that honey is sweet and tasting it. 
But don't misunderstand. Uh, you will never save or unless you see. You see the beauty of who God is is revealed in his word. But on the other hand, uh, you never see unless you savor Jesus. Spiritual transformation is a function of both deep thought and deep passion. For ever since the creation of the world, it is all about God's glory. The created universe is all about glory. The deepest longing of the human heart, the deepest meaning of the heavens and earth can be summed up in this, the glory of God. The universe was made to show it. You were made to see it and savor it. Which is precisely why the world is, is as disordered and dysfunctional as it is. Because we have exchanged the glory of God for lesser glory. For idols. So says John Piper. And I would add in the church today, too often we settle for a little head knowledge. You know, because we're busy. And too often we don't really savor Jesus in the moments that make up our lives. And so, friends, I want to say to you, uh, uh, in, God hasn't revealed himself in the beauty of creation or the wonders of his uh, word merely to satisfy your curios curiosity, but to fill your heart. I mean, think of all the savoring words in the Bible, the light. Rejoice, reverence, treasure, worship, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. These are experiential terms. Oh, that we might both see and savor Jesus. Now let's go back to Exodus 34 for a moment. And, and in God revealing this about himself, really what we have is an Old Testament picture of Jesus, right? What we have here is an Old Testament finger pointing to the coming Messiah. What we have here are the seeds of the greatest love story in human history. You know the father of mercy sending the son of mercy to make a sacrifice of mercy? That he might welcome us into his arms of mercy and send us into a world in desperate need of mercy. If you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ and if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I want you, invite you to come to him. Come to him this Thanksgiving weekend. But if you are here in Christ, if you are a, a Christian, 
Jesus saw you before the foundation of the world. He formed you in, in your mother's womb. He chose you. He called you. He justified you through the blood of the Son. And he has given you the Spirit who is now sanctifying you, empowering you, changing you, and God is preparing such a place in heaven for you that the moment you die or the moment Jesus comes back again, you will experience an explosion of perfection. Perfect love. Perfect beauty. But it's one thing to, you know, know, yeah, I know Jesus died for me. It's another for us, friends, to see him and savor him swimming to us in the ocean of his blood. There is union with Christ and there is communion with Christ. And I say this because we are all so busy. And I submit to you the only way to explain the remarkable life of Moses, or Abraham and Sarah for that matter, Job, Samuel, uh, David, Daniel, and, and on and on, is to understand that they saw with their head and they savored with their heart and it changed everything about them. A couple of years ago, Rhonda and I moved to a different home. Only to realize that spring that we had this massive pink flowering crab tree in our front yard. Now, I've seen flowering crab trees all my life. It's part of living in the Midwest, right? But this one was in my yard. And one day, as I was looking at this tree, it hit me. And honestly, the whole world stopped. Because I realized the beauty of this absolutely gorgeous tree was but a finger pointing to the infinitely greater beauty of the gospel. Christ's death and resurrection for a self-absorbed, self-righteous, arrogant sinner like me. And I wept. I mean, I really wept in front of a tree because every fiber in my being was pulsating Jesus. Like Moses, you're going to get knocked down. You're going to experience rejection. You're going to have extended nightmares the last days and weeks and months. 
But to the extent you treasure, I mean treasure Jesus in your heart, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get up. Because to you, Jesus is better than life. And that's all wound up in this word saw in Hebrews 11.27. Now let's go on. And let's look at the happy result. And it brings us to our third word, the first word in this clause. He persevered. It's persevered because he saw him who is invisible. You know what the happy result of of seeing Jesus, uh, seeing the one who is invisible, is you will persevere. And the ups and downs of life. So the uh, question I want to wrestle with as we begin to wind down over the next hour is what does this perseverance look like? Let me say, first of all, and for starters, it means that with Moses, with Moses, you will persevere in adversity. Adversity is inevitable, but perseverance is a choice. By faith, Moses chose. I've told this story before, but it works so well here. Uh, There was a woman on an airplane experiencing unbelievable turbulence. A plane was shaking, rattling, and, and dropping. And almost everybody was in agony, scared. Some were panicking. And this woman looks across the aisle, and there's this 10, 10, 11-year-old little girl. She's got her headphones on, and she's swaying and singing softly and smiling. She's listening to her music, and the whole world is at peace, and she is totally content. The plane lands. The woman goes up to the little girl and says, how could that be? How could you be so happy, so content uh, when I was so scared to death? And the little girl quietly looked at her and said, oh, my daddy is the pilot. And he's taking me home. Life is full of turbulence. But Jesus loves you to the stars. Remember, as high as the heavens are above the earth, And he will, he will get you home. So you persevere in adversity. And you never let your pain, your pain, your circumstances determine your image of God. You always start with the noun, with God. And God shapes how you view your difficulty. You know, I I sometimes wonder if, James in the New Testament had Moses in mind when he wrote at the beginning of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter a variety of different trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let it complete its work. You will persevere in adversity. Because for you, Jesus is better. Uh, The second thing 
that this kind of perseverance uh, looks like is that with Moses, you will persevere in temptation. Now, over and over, the Bible tells us trials from God, come from God, but temptation never does. So James, a little later, in James chapter 1, beginning in uh, verse 13, says, when you are tempted, no one can say, God is tempting me, because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Uh, trials are mostly, not exclusively so, but mostly external. But temptation is internal. Do I eat this apple? Adam, what do you think? What is better? What we can see? Or the invisible God we can't see? Is Jesus really better? Adam and Eve said no. A little later in the book of Genesis, Joseph will say yes. Jesus is better. Now Moses was tempted by greed, by the comfortable good life, by anger, by doubt. Moses' heart was just as sinful as yours and mine. But Moses knew something that we need to know in these moments of temptation. And it's this, as someone else said, the key to the triumph of obedience over disobedience is the confidence that your Jesus is better. Better than the passing pleasures of sin infinitely better. I have a friend overseas who shipwrecked his life and his marriage because he drank too much and he was unfaithful. In the uh, moments, and they start out as little and then they become a, a little bigger, he, he, he saw Jesus but he didn't savor Jesus. He savored the bottle, his desires. What is it for you? What's your apple? Or if you're like me, your apples. Is it your need for affirmation? Significance? or something far more sinister. In the very next chapter, I'm talking Hebrews chapter 12, in the first couple of verses, we are told the way we lay aside every sin that hinders or cumbers us and run with perseverance the race marked out for us is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
by pivoting from the horizontal to the vertical. Uh, by pivoting from what I feel to what God has revealed about himself in his word. To fix our eyes on Jesus. And, and what I'm saying is if you want freedom from addiction, negative feelings, you must learn to meditate and relish Jesus by saturating your life with God's word. Until his glory and grace and goodness breaks through into your soul. Now, I'm not saying you quit your job. I'm not saying busyness is a sin because it's not. I am saying through the crazy, chaotic, chaotic busy days of our lives, we need to continually press reset. And draw up a, a, a verse we have memorized. A prayer that works for us. Because we want to treasure Jesus. But having said that, make no mistake. Seeing and savoring Jesus demands slowing. Slowing at different moments in your life because when you warm yourself at the fire of God's love in Christ you won't look for strange fires elsewhere and then finally and with Moses you know what you're going to persevere in humility I think this is the most important of the three do you know what revival is? Sometimes we read about revival, or for that matter, renewal, spiritual renewal. It's an intensification of seeing and savoring Jesus. And central to that is humility. And central to humility is you understanding that your identity and your significance isn't a function of you answering the question, who am I? But answering the question, whose am I? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You did not make yourself and you are not made for yourself. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. And so I want to invite you this morning to give up on yourself spiritually. What I mean is to stop trying to be the vine. You are a branch, and, and if you're like me, a feeble branch at best. To say it differently, we need Jesus to live for Jesus, to see and savor Jesus. And so not surprisingly, later in the Old Testament, we're told that Moses... Uh, Moses was more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. The British Puritans had a word to describe the incarnation, the suffering, and the death of Jesus. Stooped. 
Jesus laid aside his glory and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ stooped for you, infinitely so, perfectly so, lovingly so. May uh, we continually stoop before him because we treasure the life-changing power and the softness of Jesus' love. And then the residual is we will increasingly stoop before others. I'm inviting you to turn your eyes on Jesus and continually turning to look full in his glorious face. And then you know what happens? The things of earth not only grow strangely dim, they grow strangely clear in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Let's pray. How is this, Father? That you love the likes of us. with so much depth and breadth. How is it that you would send your son, the second person of the triune God, to die for our sin? How can it be that we so often ignore our husband and his love? Oh, God, we need you. Give us the grace and more grace and continued grace. And thank you for unstoppable grace that enables us to turn our eyes on Jesus. To your honor and your glory. Amen.